Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How many of you had a delightfully weird Thanksgiving? Anyone? Good, I hope so. Um, We had some family in from out of town, just a couple of uh, family members, which was delightful, and we uh, decided, you know, with all the whatever going on, we would take them up into the mountains um, because it's safer up there. Uh, uh, Not realizing, of course, or not thinking through the fact that there was less oxygen up there than they were used to. So bizarrely, ironically, whatever, they were more at risk up in the mountains than they were anywhere else. Um, But we had a great time, and now we get to do this turning of the corner where we move from Advent uh, towards, sorry, from, from Thanksgiving and fall towards the Advent season. We get to begin to think about this, this Jesus story. So just for fun, for a second, uh, take a moment to think about what is the worst Christmas song you have ever heard. And then later, I would like you all to come and give me all the reasons that the correct answer to that question is Little Drummer Boy, uh, which is profoundly just a terrible song, in my humble opinion. Uh, Come let me know why that's the correct answer. Here are the passages for those of you that like to know where we're going on this delightful journey of sermoning that we do together. Uh, You can take a picture, you can come back to them later, I will flash them up at the end. Uh, But we're going to start this series, Advent Conspiracy, by talking a little bit for a second about, well, what actually is Advent anyway? Advent is part of the church's liturgical calendar. If you don't know what that means, that's fine. It's this calendar that that recycles each year. It's this period where we begin, as I say, to think about uh, the Jesus story, But, but actually something a little more than that. Advent is a season of waiting. It's a season of waiting. We remember the fact that that actually years and years ago, these people had waited for Messiah, for this this figure to appear who would do incredible things. Jesus wasn't what they expected. They had waited for a long time. And now we as his followers, and if you're not following Jesus right now, you're you're kind of excused from this. You you get to step out a second. That's fine. Uh, we, We are waiting as well. We believe that Jesus came once, And that will come again. We're waiting for this this Jesus to reappear. So in some ways, this this story, this Advent thing, it's not for the faint of heart. Because it's a season where we take seriously the way that the world actually is. Jesus came and did this incredible thing. He died and rose again. That's the already done part. But there's also this not yet part. There's this thing that we're waiting for. We're waiting for the world to look as God would have the world look. And if we're honest, it doesn't look like that right now. When the world doesn't look like that, what we're tempted to do is to fill the voids, to fill the darkness with as much stuff as possible, to kind of compensate for the fact that the world isn't what it should be. But real Advent takes seriously this like embracing. No, it's not what it should be. And we long for the day it is. That's why Fleming Rutledge, the author, says Advent is not for the faint of heart. Advent is a season for bravery. It's a season to determine, to say, ah, I can't wait. The image I would give you is this. It's kind of like 
a house that hasn't been lived in yet. I know this is Colorado, so there are no houses that haven't been lived in, although someone did find me one on the internet, but for the most part, houses here sell like crazy, but in other places of the world, that is not always the case. Uh, and this house was built in Michigan when we first moved into our house in 2015, and still to this day, it has not sold. Now, it might be because they made this ghastly carpet choice in the upper floors. Uh, we had that carpet in my house in the 80s. It wasn't great then, and it's not great now. But it's also just a really expensive house in an area that people may not buy a really expensive house. But this house is, is waiting. It, it's already not yet. It's made, but there's no one living in it. That's what Advent season is like. It's this season of waiting. We're like, ah, the thing is coming. Jesus came once, and he will come again. So a couple of passages to start us off. This is Isaiah chapter 9. For us, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And this from Luke chapter 1. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. We're going to come back to the first of those passages later. But they are our readings for today. We're walking through this series that, we're called, that is called Advent Conspiracy. This isn't something that's original to South. This is something that churches all over the country are doing. And it's this, based around this idea. Advent Conspiracy is a movement built around the idea that Christmas can still change the world. Christmas, when done right, can still change the world, as compared to Christmas that's done the way that we usually see it. So we're going to walk through these sort of four challenges. We're going to begin with this idea of worship fully, but then we're going to talk about spend less, give more, and love all. So if you're planning on going and spending a chunk of money, do it before week two, because you might feel profoundly guilty after week two. Um, but th there's this idea that, that sort of grounds the whole thing. The Advent is this season where we're invited into worship in a different way. The word worship comes from an old English word, uh, worth-ship. It's about the value that you place on something. This is a passage from Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water, the, the pastor Charles Spurgeon said he felt like every follower of Jesus should read this passage every morning when they woke up. Because doesn't it just capture that sense of longing, of value, of desire? It's like, oh, you, God, Oh my God, earnestly I seek you. He compares it to that feeling that we've all had of being thirsty. Every single one of you at some point, I'm sure, has had that summer day feeling of like, oh, I've either worked out or I've run hard or I've done something. And right now I am desperately thirsty. I long for some water and I would chase after it if I saw it. If someone were to drag a bottle of water behind a car, I'd be there running after it, trying to grab hold of it. I, I am that desperately thirsty. And this, this is what this writer compares his desire for God to. He has this incredible value on, on who God is, this incredible desire to be in his presence. And that's a struggle for me because I wonder how often I feel like that. 
And my question for you would be, how often do you feel like that? How often does your desire for God, is it typified by the longing for water? I remember those days playing soccer when I was eight, nine years old, where I'd play for hour after hour. And at the end of it, I'm like, I'm gasping. And this is the picture that we're given. I would say this is my my starting thesis. Uh, You always pursue what has value to you. You always pursue what has value to you. If there's something that you value, you usually end up chasing after it. You usually end up working towards it. Uh, As a picture of value, I used to work on a golf course, uh, and the language that we would use back in England, we would talk about council workers, people that worked for municipal organizations, usually as a a huge generalization. Uh, These guys left school fairly early, so they'd maybe start working for these organizations at 16. Uh, Quite often, they came from lower-income families. It's not a criticism, just an observation. Uh, And so you'd always meet these interesting characters. And there was this one guy. uh, He was a mean guy. He would tease a small child. He would bully a kitten. Like, picture a Labrador retriever. This guy would go, a little puppy. This guy would go after it. He just was not nice at all. He loved making fun of people. And yet, he had this huge value on Princess Diana of Wales. Like so many of you, you may be into the crown right now, you know how wonderful Princess Diana was. And he had met her at an event. He'd got to build this build, help build this building, and she'd been there as part of the opening. And he got to meet her. And this guy who was mean, who was nasty, who would bully innocent creatures, when he talked about Princess Diana of Wales, would suddenly go all misty-eyed. Little tears would appear there, like begin to trickle down his face. And he would look and he would say, oh, the most beautiful woman I have ever seen in my life. There was something about who she was that had captivated him in this incredible way. This is this picture of value that we're talking about. He had this incredible value on her. And, and when you value something, Usually what happens is you begin to pursue it. You begin to to want to know more about it. You begin to chase after it. This is a picture of the mountain biker, Danny McGaskill, on top of the inaccessible peak on the Isle of Skye. It's this mountain that is hard to climb, let alone hard to bike up. And yet he had lived in this region, and he said, I just always have longed to sit on a mountain bike on the top of the Isle of Skye. Just something about him just drew his attention. And so I have this little video of the making of this clip, uh, and I want you to just tap into a few of the words that are used, a few, few of the bits of language that are used here. Right. I think rightly so, everyone else on the team wasn't too impressed when I unclipped from the rope. But as I say, I felt totally comfortable being there. So that way. Excellent, well done. Excellent, well done. Oh my god. It's terrifying and incredible at the same time. Yeah! Look at where we are, look at the weather. This is. Ah! Can't believe it. This is insane. It's good. Real good. Definitely can't believe I'm up on top of the intense. It's insane. It's like I've definitely been sort of dreaming about it for a long time, so look at this place. Like. 
So, few bits of language that we heard there. He talked, one of his, his filmographers, one of the guys filming him, talked about this idea, it's terrifying and wonderful at the same time. At one point, he can't actually express what he means. He just says, oh, it's good. He said, I have been dreaming about this for years. This guy has been willing to sacrifice for this mountaintop moment. He stood there in this moment with his bicycle underneath him, and he's like, ah. Oh, this is what I've been looking for. It's interesting, just as an observation, that throughout history, experiences of God, encounters with him, have often been shaped around mountaintops in like, terms of their geography. But there's something about his desire here, something about his longing that I think we get to tap into. When you value something, you are willing to go to incredible lengths to get hold of it. You always pursue what has value to you. So think about some of the things that we might chase as a society today. Uh, maybe one of them is wealth. We want to accumulate more money. We want to do the Ebenezer Scrooge thing. We want to have lots of wealth, and we want to think about our next pay rise. We want to watch our stocks really closely. We want to make sure that we have lots and lots of, of cash. Uh, maybe another one is, is we chase after the fame thing. Uh, we want to be known. We want to be valued by the world. We want to have that sort of feeling of not standing on a physical mountaintop, but been standing on the mountaintop of the world's achievement. We want people to say, ah, you are, you are incredible in terms of what you have done. And then maybe another one, which maybe I, I sympathize with a little more. Maybe we chase after happiness. But maybe we often do that through the first two. We think that wealth and fame will make us happy, even though we have all these cautionary tales that suggest the opposite. We see so many people that are both rich and famous and, and yet are deeply unhappy. And the lesson maybe there is that they don't do what we think that it's going to do. But, but I think there's something that we chase after that is more dangerous than any of these because we don't even realize that we do it. We just chase after more stuff. I'm not talking about like actual wealth. I'm talking about just acquiring more possessions. Don't we see that at Christmas? We'll talk about spend less in detail next week, but the average spending worldwide on Christmas is about a trillion dollars. A trillion dollars based around presents that will be forgotten in a year, acquiring more stuff. The first year that Laura and I were married, first two, three years, we lived in this house in England. If it looks like it might fall down, it's because there was a danger, a serious danger that it would fall down. We used to get people walk up the pathway and say, wow, I didn't realize that anybody lived here. I thought it was abandoned. The, the postman that had delivered mail to us for over a year finally met one of us and said, I thought I was delivering mail to an empty house. Are you allowed to live in this place? There was something about the, the, the sort of the house that looked like it was broken and, and needed tearing down. And we lived that year on around $15,000. We had almost no money. A date night for us looked like this. You know those, like you, you sign up at a store with your phone number and you get the points that acquire. At the end of like however many months, we would find that we had enough money to instead of just our normal, buying our normal groceries, we would buy some duck fillets and a bottle of wine. And that was what date night looked like. Unless someone came to us and said, we're going to give you some money to go on a date. We just didn't have that disposable income. And yet, we would have these friends that would come over to hang out, and they would say things like, oh, I wish we were as happy 
as you guys. They would say things like, oh, I just don't want to leave this house. There's this incredible sense of peace and happiness and joy here. These were things that people would say to us repeatedly. Now, we went on to have more money. We went on to live in nicer homes. But sometimes what I question is this. Did that enable us to do what so many of us, if we're honest, do? We just started acquiring more stuff. And the Advent conspiracy idea would suggest that when we do that, we're trying to fill some other voids that, that really we should be taking a moment to look at and sort of embracing and challenging ourselves on. So, so if, when we start with worship fully, if the idea is that we maybe need to change our value system, that valuing God and who he is more will enable us to chase after him more regularly, how do we do that? How do we change a value system that essentially is built on either wealth or stuff or happiness or fame or any of those things? How do we go through this process of saying, God, I want to value you more this season. I want to put you as the center of everything. Because I would say an experience of God, it actually only comes after a determined pursuit. There's some great contemplative writers that would suggest this. Experiencing God usually happens after one of two things. Sometimes it's suffering. So we have people in our community, you've suffered greatly. You've been through some stuff. And you might look back retrospectively after some years and say, ah, oh, I have experienced God in and through that. That doesn't minimize the suffering. It doesn't take it away. I'm not saying it's like this instantaneous fix, but occasionally you run into people that, that seem to just have this greater experience of God than, than you or I might have. And then you hear some of their backstory and they, you hear people say things like, oh, well, yeah, they, they had everything and then they, they lost everything or this thing happened in their life and it just changed them in this incredible way. Suffering can do that to you. But the other way is, is this decision to, to contemplate, to actually take time to value God and intentionally pursue him. And if I'm honest, in so much of my life, that other stuff that we talked about, that becomes the center. And, and this decision to worship fully, to pursue God is hard because there's other stuff that gets in the way of that. I think maybe our first step in order to, to take that pursuit seriously, to do that Psalm 63 thing, is I would suggest we need to re-see the story that we're invited to live in. Because you and I live in this huge story. We live in this Jesus story that is magnificent, that is changing the whole world. And, and sometimes we get, we normalize that too much. We're like, oh, well, I'm so used to this story. I've been hearing it since I was a little kid. Reseeing just how grand it is can sometimes be the thing that, that leads us into worshiping fully. So what we're going to do for the next however many minutes is we're going to take two narratives and compare them side by side. So the narratives might seem unadvent-like, or at least the first one is unadvent-like. We're going to talk about Abraham and his son Isaac. And this moment where God appears to Abraham and says something that in our 21st century eyes is just ridiculous. He asks him to, to give, to sacrifice his son. God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrificing there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. 
So here's what's unusual about this story. It's completely not unusual. It's completely usual. For this time, this age, this culture, this kind of sacrifice was a regular thing. What's interesting about this story is actually Abraham's involvement in it. So what has happened up until this point is that God, this God that we worship, has appeared to Abraham and said, come on a journey with me. I'm going to move you and all your family. I'm going to shift you from like this one place that you've been living with all your family for generations, and I'm going to move you to another area. And instead of worshiping your old gods, you're going to worship me instead. There's this implication in the story that this God is different, that he's calling Abraham to something different. He starts to say things like, your family will shape the entire world. You'll be set apart. And, and set apart simply means to be different. And, and you'll do something incredible as a family. And then this happens. And I wonder what Abraham's reaction to this is. I think it's probably something like, wait, you're just like all the other gods. You're just like them. This is, the, this is the kind of stuff they've been asking us to do for, for as long as we can remember. We've had these stories that suggest the gods are mad and we have to appease them. We have to keep them happy. And you said you were different and you called me on this journey and I left worshiping these other gods and I came to follow you. And now in this moment, you're just like all the others. I think for Abraham, there's probably this profound sense of, of disappointment. Thought I was on a journey and I'm not. I'm just, it's just the same as everybody else. There was this general narrative amongst all religions of this time. We are the gods who require your sons. This special gift, like having sons in that culture was, was considered better than having daughters. It was a desirable thing. And, and the gods would ask their followers to give them up as a sacrifice. And that was what happened regularly. And now this God who's supposed to be different is doing the same thing. And then the story twists. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the knife, the fire and the knife. There's this moment where Abraham is going to do the unthinkable. He's going to attach back into these old stories. And then in the midst of his moment of obedience, an angel appears and says, uh, sorry, let's read this part first. As the two of them went up together, Isaac spoke and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Abraham probably has some questions. Isaac probably has some more questions about what's going on here. And this is the angel's word to him. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The switch in the story is this moment where Abraham, in the moment of obedience, is told to do something completely counterintuitive to every other religion of its day. Suddenly, this isn't a God who requires your sons. This is the God who does not 
ask for them, who does not require them, who looks for this moment of obedience, but then says, no, that isn't who I am. This is like an ancient sermon. This is like a sermon against all the other religions of its day. No, this isn't who you're called to be, and this isn't what I want. When we talk about worship fully, when we talk about entering into this giant story that we're called to be a part of, I would say it begins with the worship of a God who provides for our needs. In that moment where Abraham needs something, it's provided. This sacrifice miraculously turns up in this moment. And I just wonder how that story intersects. Like, I wonder how this ram or lamb story intersects with Abraham's story. At some point, this lamb or ram is, is minding its own business and somehow, through whatever means, winds up stood in a thicket about to become a sacrifice. Like, that story intersects too. But God provides, and the story ends with that moment of, on the mountain of the Lord, God provides And then we switch to the Jesus story. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. For unto us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. This Jesus story taps into this idea of gift that Jesus is a gift. This is God not requiring our sons, but I am the God who gives my own son. This is the switch in the story. This is this dramatic revelation, at least for the people of its day, the moment that the the old gods, they don't matter anymore. Their, Their demands, they don't apply to this God. Not only does he not demand your sons, he chooses to give his own It's fascinating that the the mountain, Moriah, that Abraham and Isaac walk up to, that's the same mountain that Jesus will die on. Geographically, they're the same place. Thousands of years later, this story that's hinted at, this story becomes reality. The God who does not require your sons becomes the God who will give his own son. And we get these pictures that I love at Advent, the little glimpses of Jesus' life as a child and you see like the foreshadowing as he sits on the floor of the carpenter's workshop and he plays with nails and we get to think through what those nails will ultimately come to mean in his story one day it's a story of sacrifice but the idea of a god who gives his own sons doesn't even it doesn't even get to the depths of it because while jesus is a gift The idea in in Christian thought of Trinity is that Jesus is himself God living our story. So it's not just a gift of a son. It's I am the God who gives of my own self. God is the one who is constantly giving, constantly reaching out to us. He is always the one making the first move towards us. Even when we think we made the move first. You in your story may have a feeling that at some point you approached this God, but there's this idea that you only did that because he approached you first. You may never have realized it, but he was the one that was drawing you. That's how the story seems to work. There's this beautiful sense of sacrifice that God makes in this story, no longer requiring sacrifice of us, as was the old way. He now makes that sacrifice first. This is a picture of Will Told Palicki. He is the only guy to voluntarily go to Auschwitz, the death camp 
in Germany during the Second World War. Up until a certain point, the, the Allies had thought that the, the, the Auschwitz was mainly just a, a prison camp, nothing out of the way. But there were these rumors of troubling things that were starting to come out of it. And so Will told Palicki, said, I'm going to go and allow myself to be captured, allow myself to be taken to Auschwitz, and I'll begin to feed information back to you and let you know what's going on there. So he did this and started to raise up a resistance there, finally managed to escape and, and tell the world exactly what was going on. And then while they were figuring out what to do with it, he said, well, no, what I'll do is I'll go back and I'll help lead the rebellion there. Not only did he go to Auschwitz once, he went twice. As it turned out, his sacrifice was, was so great that once the government started to change after the Second World War, his own government turned against him and he was executed in his turn. But his story, his life is one of this constant sacrifice for the betterment of humanity, the greater good. He had this just innate heart to him. When they looked at his life in the 90s, someone did a review of his life and said this, when God made humans, Will told Palicki was what he had in mind. There was something about his ability to give that was just captivating. And I think those stories resonate with us because they touch on the Jesus story which is that this God isn't interested in our sacrifice, but he's constantly making them himself. This is the vastness of the story that you and I are invited into. Worship of the God who provides for our needs with his own life. That's the bigness, the largeness, the hugeness of it. And then one more thing. It's the worship of the God who provides for our needs with his own life and also who restores all things. Because this God is interested in you and he is interested in me passionately, deeply, individually. And yet he's also interested in this world and what this world is becoming as well. Because we started this Advent sort of season by looking at this idea that Advent is waiting it's recognizing that the world is not what it should be. It's already Jesus has done the thing. He died and rose again. But it's also not yet. We're also waiting for all the ways for this, this kingdom to shape this world in ways that are good. And we long for it. It's a slow kingdom coming at times, but we long for it as his followers. We're like, ah, this world will be different one day. This is what this God does. This is the big part of the story. Sometimes as followers of Jesus, this is where we land. We believe the story starts with fall, mankind is broken, and redemption of us as individuals. But that's not the full extent of the story. The story starts in Genesis 1 with the idea that God made us to be good. He made this world to be good. And it ends in this book, Revelation, with the idea that one day it will be made to be good again. This is the story that you live in. This is the story that you're invited into. When we re-see the story, we're invited to worship in new ways. We're invited to worship fully. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like sifting shadows. He's interested in our good, and that Jesus story is the beginning of this world becoming good in new ways. You always pursue what has value to you. 
Hopefully when you see the story in new and fresh ways, there's a new value on it. This story is big. And you, wherever you are, whatever you have done, however broken you feel, you this Advent season are invited in. I'm going to leave those passages back up for anyone who wants to take a picture and read them at home. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back on stage and we're going to close with a song. But we're going to take a moment to pray. God, may we learn to value you in new ways. May we take as our prayer those words from Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. May we thirst after you like children worn out from a game, desperate for water. May we see your story, this big thing that you've been shaping, this arc of history that you've been working on. It doesn't always look like we think it should look right now, but there's this moment of like, ah, that's what it's becoming. God, this Advent, may we choose not to chase after things like wealth, after things like more stuff, after things like fame, even just after our own happiness. May we choose to enter into your story, become brave people who choose to enter into waiting, who see the world as it really is, but long for you to transform it. I pray for each person here who isn't part of your journey, isn't part of your story right now, that they would have the bravery to step into it. Maybe just in a moment of reflection, of admitting that they've gone their own way, that they've tried to create their own story but you invite us into yours, the story of a God who gives of his own self. Thank you, Jesus, that you're present with us today. Continue to work in our hearts as we sing. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South Family. Have a great rest of your day.